Hello, Beyond the Mass listeners. Jeremy here. The ANA Foundation is planning another great fundraising event, and you won't even have to leave the comfort of your home to attend. Treasure Island, a virtual event for CRNAs and SRNAs, will be an online event featuring live and pre-recorded fun, information, recognition, and education presented by and for CRNAs and SRNAs. We set sail to Treasure Island on Sunday, August the 16th, and content will be available throughout August and September. Tickets are $100 for CRNAs and $25 for SRNAs. You can purchase your tickets today at www.aanafoundation.com and designate Treasure Island Ticket. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. So Sharon, we're back together again. Yes, we are. In the studio, and uh, we want to welcome our guests, and obviously thank Sandy for being here. Um, And uh, we'll just kind of jump right into it, Sandy. Okay, it's always a pleasure to be here with you guys. And today we're going to be talking about the relevance of the first IFNA researcher today. Yeah. Sounds like a mouthful. It is. Yeah. So, you know, we recently participated in another podcast. You and I. Yes. We were interviewed. We were interviewed. That was kind of cool. And there was actually a mention of the lack of nurse anesthetists in the UK and Ireland and other developed countries around the world. It was also discussed. So our moderator was a European, Mm -hmm. a very dapper European, I might say. Absolutely. Yeah. And he had a wonderful co-host. Yes, he did. Who happened to be a CRNA. From Kentucky. Yeah. And he's from the UK. Well, and he mentioned that nurses needed to remain at the bedside, and that is why others with science backgrounds and so forth are prepared to assist with anesthesia. So, Sandy, what is your reaction to that statement? Well, two things. The first thing that comes to mind is it's insulting. You know, you would think that a nurse doesn't have to have a science background to be a nurse. Right. And we can take someone with a science background and make them a care provider. Mm -hmm. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. The second thing is, I don't think it's correct. And we'll get into that on this podcast. I think there are political and economic reasons 
where the UK and countries such as Australia and New Zealand and some of them have pretty much stayed away from nursing as a specialty in anesthesia. And it has nothing to do with taking the nurses away from the bedside. Right. But we've heard that before. But particularly in this year of uh, the WHO designated year of the nurse, I find it one word insulting. Well, you know, Sandy, and it's something you've dealt with your whole career. And a lot of CRNAs have dealt with Mm -hmm. that. And obviously here, we're not trying to say anything about anybody else. But the actual person that said that was an anesthesiologist, I believe, from the UK, we were being interviewed. Mm -hmm. So and he was absolutely authentic. He believed exactly what he said. And you know, I can I can present some material uh, in this podcast on why they believe Mm -hmm. It's, it's published. It, it uh, it's not you know my assumption. It is a published fact. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that might be the perception of a lot of MD anesthesiologists mm-hmm. around the country. Mm-hmm. So, not just in the UK. Not just in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. Uh, so, Sandy, why don't you tell us what led to IFNA mm-hmm. appointing an official researcher in the nineties? Okay, um, in nineteen ninety, our founder of IFNA, Hermie Lohner from Switzerland. And Ron Kalk from the U.S. decided, hey, we have birthed this baby in 1989, so now let's go to the big stage. So they went to the World Health Organization and met with the chief nurse specialist, who I believe was Dr. Miriam Hirschfeld at the time. And they were just so happy to find out about nurse anesthetists all over the world from the World Health Organization. So they posed the question, and the answer was something like, why would we take our nurses and make technicians out of them? Mm, technicians. Oh uh-huh. And so Ron then, you know, he, I'm surprised he didn't explode. But, uh, <laughs> With his but, temper. <laughs> yeah, but he said, because nurses are administering anesthesia all over the world. And Dr. Hirschfeld said, show me. Ooh. And so that challenge then led the IFNA to set out to document mm-hmm. the existence of nurse anesthetists throughout the world, their role, their education, and their recognition in the countries where they provide anesthesia. And so Ron came back to the U.S., and he appointed, uh, with, with permission, or she agreed to do it, Dr. Mara McAuliffe as the IFNA official researcher for us at that time. And Dr. McAuliffe was assigned to collaborate with the World Health Organization in an ongoing international study on nurse anesthesia, education practice, and regulation. And it was a big thing. And Mm. so she had a co-investigator in the study who's now deceased. It was a big loss to all of nursing, Dr. Beverly Henry. And so the two of them said they would do that. And so they developed a survey with WHO member countries and ICN member countries, so World Health Organization and the International Council of Nurses. So the survey, how they would distribute it, came from the help of um, of people from WHO and ICN. And the first two phases of the study was completed in 1994, and that is published. A third and final stage was completed in 2000, and to my knowledge, that has not been published. And this was such a valuable study And you can see it was going to take part over about six years, and it was going to be costly. 
and uh, it was in collaboration with the World Health Organization. So where was the money coming from? Mm. And I really want to thank, again, Council on Recertification of Nurse Anesthetists at the time that supported this, as well as the IFNA. But we were a young organization. We were just getting our feet on the ground. We didn't have a lot of money. Right. It could not have been done with the Council on Recertification no. at that time. So the concerns still couldn't be done. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So the concerns of the IFA leaders at the time is that many ministers of health and nursing leaders were really unaware who was administering anesthesia in their country. You could talk to a minister of health and you'd say, "Who is administering anesthesia?" Say in Ghana, for example, and he said, "Oh, a physician anesthetist." Mm-hmm. Well, you look at the population of Ghana, and you see they have three. Anesthesiologist, (laughs) and they have about a hundred nurse anesthetists or nurse specialists in that country, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that that isn't right. And also of concern was that many of these anesthesia providers had no formal education, and they were not officially recognized in their country, and they were pleading for continuing education opportunities. Mm -hmm. There was just none of that. As a study certainly showed when uh, Dr. McAuliffe and Dr. Henry got all their their data together, it, it certainly uh, shouted that very clearly. So, all right, we've talked about Mara just a little bit. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about her and her background and why she was the right person for this job? Well, Mara has a uh, superb doctoral education. She's a, a, a research doctorate. And she's interested in research. She is a nurse anesthetist. She certainly had a wider view of the world than some others at the time, given the fact that she was a, um, a military CRNA. She um, retired from the Air Force. She was responsible for the educational programs uh, while she was in the Air Force. And then when she retired, she moved to North Carolina, actually. She's one of, uh, one of our colleagues here in the eastern part of the state, and she directs the program right now at East Carolina uh, University. She's a wonderful person. She's smart. She could get it done. And in addition to that, she's fun to be with. Uh, (laughs) She loves to sail. I like to deep sea fish. And so we've been out together to the Gulf Stream 30 miles offshore, and we've had a a good time doing those things. But she's got a a wonderful little place down on the intercoastal waterway, and she just loves it. But she really did a great service to IFNA by getting this done. And you have to remember, there was no electronics in 1990. Mm -hmm. All these surveys had to be done. So all you doctoral people out there whining about your surveys and everything, (laughs) not (laughs) not only did the survey have to be developed, it had to be translated into many different languages. And it had to be mailed. And it had to be mailed. Wow. Internationally. Oh, my God. <laughs> right. Aren't you surprised we got any data at all? Oh, my God. And, all right, so let's talk about some of the data that you did get back. Okay. In phase one, what Dr. McCullough and Dr. Henry found um, after they surveyed these countries, and where did the surveys go? Well, number one, they were translated into five different languages. Mm-hmm. They were mailed to the ministers of health in 164 countries. They were also sort of to 
to be safer mailed to national nursing organizations in 154 countries. And then they mailed them to leaders in nursing administration in 176 countries. And so the findings, and the one that stands out the most probably in the phase one study, is that 107 countries were utilizing uh, nurses in the administration of anesthesia. And that is uh, 59% of all the WHO member states. And so they reported nurses were administering anesthesia in their country. Nine countries reported that nurses assisted in administering anesthesia, whatever that yeah, well, they say it. that we do that here, yeah, too. Yeah, that's, right. say, that's the definition <laughs> and, uh, of CRNA. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. Your assistance. Yeah, and in 18 countries, the evidence was inconclusive mm-hmm. by the researchers, but highly likely that nurses were administering anesthesia there as well. And the good thing that came out of this Phase one study as well is that the respondents from 112 of these countries provided contact information for 624 nurse anesthetists to be a part of the phase two study. And um, so the, the big thing here is, you know, we're not going to take our nurses and make right. technicians out of them. And Ron says, well, nurses are administering anesthesia all over the world. And she said, show me. Phase one said 107 Seven countries, countries. Uh, 59% of all H, uh, WHO member states are utilizing nurses. All right. So I hope I'm not getting ahead of us, but do you know how many countries now? since you're still involved in IFNA? No, it, it, I would uh, hate to guess because I haven't looked at that. Sure. I, I, I wouldn't want to say anything. Uh, how many countries in IFNA? Or, no, no, how many countries do nurse anesthetists because, I mean, there are more countries no, no, now or is I, that is I, it stable? No, I, I understand your question now. No, I think there probably are. I think there were probably more countries then. Right. And so one of the things that the practice committee does under the leadership of uh, Vera Musing, who is from the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. She's a nurse anesthetist mm-hmm. from the Netherlands, and uh, also she's living in Australia at the moment. But when the practice committee was uh, reestablished in 2010, I chaired it for a number of years, and then Vera took over as the chair of it. But our scope was to identify countries and their scope of practice, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which really was kind of what Mara did in phase one and phase two, but just to continue to develop that and I've not seen anything published officially on that but I know in my heart that there are many many countries more than what we have well you and I have talked about this because this podcast is downloaded in 125 countries yes so if there's nurse anesthetists that we know of in 107 either somebody's very interested <laughs> right right no i think it's more than a, in the other I'm 18 guessing, countries yeah, or, i'm guessing it's more than 107 Sandy, is countries. there a feel for how many anesthetists outside of the u.s i mean does ifna kind of have a general idea of how many crnas for lack of a better term there are outside of the u.s in terms of nurse anesthetists in general right mm-hmm how many in the world? Yeah. When I was president of IFNA, I had a list of member countries. And then I had a, and you know, the dues are paid to IFNA from each country based on active mm-hmm. members. Right. And so I had a list of all of those, and it was certainly way into hundreds of thousands. Huh, okay. But, however, you've got to understand that the uh, AINA and its CRNAs right. at sitting there at 53,000. Right 
is probably more than all the other countries put together. Yeah, that was going to be my yes, point. Yes, and the other thing about that is if you look even at ANA, and we often say, well, we have 52, 53,000, whatever it is, members of the ANA. If you want to know the active practicing members, you've got to look at the number eligible to vote, oh. right? Mm-hmm. And that's usually about 41, 42,000. Right. So between 42,000 and 53,000, you've right. got a lot of students and mm-hmm. perhaps some retired Retirees, people. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. But certainly no other country. I mean, we're talking about these other countries, 1,000 or 1,500, or France had several thousand at the time, but nothing like we have. Yeah. Just a quick interruption on today's show for a special message from Jeremy and Sharon. Well, Sharon, you know, I think we have one more thing in common. Oh, my Lord. What is it this time, Jeremy? Well, you know, it's something that you've been involved with your whole career and supported your whole career. And as you know... I am now a trustee of the ANA Foundation. Well, congratulations. They yeah. couldn't have picked a better man. Well, thank you. Thank you. I hope I can add a little bit of value anyway. But as part of that, Beyond the Mask is trying to do our part and support the foundation as well. Absolutely. We should. Yeah. And the foundation is planning another great fundraising event, but unfortunately... Oh, it's got to be virtual, I'm, I'm guessing. Yep. Uh, Thank you, COVID. So uh, no San Diego event this year. But we're planning, I think, a wonderful event for CRNAs and SRNAs and who can participate from their own home. Well, that should be fun. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fun event. Uh, It's going to be online. We're going to have live and pre-recorded fun and content. There's going to be information, uh, recognition, and even education presented by CRNAs and SRNAs around the country. And I think Beyond the Mask might even provide some content. I believe so. And we're going to have a mystery guest with us in our virtual room. Mm-hmm. I think people will find this mystery guest interesting. I, I think so. So how do you get a ticket, Jeremy? So you can go to the website, uh, www.aanafoundation.com. The event's going to be on Sunday, August the 16th. But since this is a virtual event, it's actually going to be recorded and the content's going to be available through August and September. But we are going to be live. We will be live. There's going to be several aspects of the event that will be live and some recorded. Um, I've never done anything like this before, so I'm excited. I am excited too. Yeah. And so are you going to dress like a pirate? Ooh, that would be fun. What would you be? <laughs> a winch, for sure. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> so, um, I, I, Captain Stanley. Yeah. And, you know, tickets, obviously, this is a fundraiser for the foundation. Mm-hmm. So, the tickets for CRNAs are going to be $100 a piece, which okay. is a deal yes, to support the foundation. And for SRNAs, they're going to be $25 a piece. All right. So we just want to encourage our listeners to make sure you're supporting the ANA Foundation and all the great work the foundation does. Go out and buy a ticket. Show up on the 16th and participate with your other colleagues. We'll be there. Yes, we will. All right. Thanks, Jeremy and Sharon. Let's get back to today's show. 
Well, that kind of leads us. I know there was a, a phase two study as well. And what were the findings in that, Sandy? Okay, that uh, that was also interesting because here's your survey again. This time, <laughs> it only has to be translated into four languages. Oh, so maybe all. it's and a, snail mail. It's a, yeah, and uh, and mailed to six hundred and twenty-four uh, nurse anesthetists that were identified in phase one. The questions on the survey included items addressing anesthesia practice. There were about eighty items. You know, what do you do? And education, you know, what is your level of education? And how are you regulated? Is it through the Minister of Health, the Minister of Education? Does anybody in your country even know you're there (laughs) doing what you're doing? Right. And um, so there were responses from 92 countries. So uh, it was, uh, I think, around 300 of that 624 that was validated uh, from Phase 1. And what they found was... Nurse anesthetists provide as much as 77% of anesthesia in urban areas and 75% in rural areas of their country. They looked at what are you doing and what they found was for cesarean sections, 85% of them are involved in cesarean sections. Wow. 77% administer drugs to induce anesthesia. 74% perform tracheal intubation, 57% spinal anesthesia. They administer, the word is administer it, and administer epidural anesthesia. That would be 44%. And 79% of them say that they manage the patient in the um, intraoperative period. Now, I'm surprised that's not higher. Wow. I wonder about, mm-hmm. about that. But they intubate, as the study showed, and they manage patients in the immediate postoperative period, but not as much as they do in the intraoperative period. The thing that was really important in this, 57% reported the requirements of a physician anesthetist to supervise. So it's not just a physician as we have in this country, but it's a physician anesthetist to supervise a work that was mostly in the European regions. Mm-hmm. And 43% had no requirements. That is in some of your developing countries. They can't have those requirements because right. they don't have any doctors specializing, or very few specialized in anesthesia. All the respondents reported having a formal course of anesthesia, but some of them had to travel a good distance to obtain this education. Some had to go to other countries. And 50% reported continuing education was not available. And 74% reported hospital policies and governmental regulation guide their practice of nurse anesthesia. So 74% said it's hospital policies, and then 60% added to that governmental uh, regulation. So that was, uh, that was tremendous information we had that had never been collected before. And so when you began then to go back to WHO and ICN in some of these countries, then um, now we have some ammunition. And that was the first. Not to digress, but as you were giving these percentages of what they do, it's kind of interesting that it drops whenever you get to regional anesthesia, which is similar to this country. It is. But I would challenge you to think that that's a technical thing. And so yet they want nurses to be technicians, but the most technical aspect they want to do. The yes. physicians want to That's do. That's right. That's right. You know, I used to say, why is it okay for us to be able to paralyze the entire body with rock uranium? Not right. rock then. It was pavulon then. But we can't paralyze half the body. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
Uh, I like that. I mean, we can knock them slap out and do total (laughs) paralysis of the skeletal system, but we can't paralyze from T10 down. (laughs) There has to be a story in that, Sharon. (laughs) That is really, really good. I'm going to remember that. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, and, you know, looking at these countries. Why don't they train them to do this? It's the safest for them. They don't have anesthetic agents like we do. And they don't have monitors like we do. And it's the very safest in in their hands. And, you know, not everyone in these countries are nurses. Some of them are anesthesia technicians. And in some countries, for example, in some of our affiliate countries, for example, they aren't a full member because not half of their members are nurses. But at the same time, these countries do not educate their nurses to the same level that they educate these technicians. You know, huh. most nurses are female. Mm-hmm. Technicians right. are mostly male. If you look at some of these countries and their overall culture and what they value, you can understand that. Well, what's also surprising to me is a lot of these countries have socialized medicine where you would think they would want nurses to be able to give anesthesia in that environment. For cost-effectiveness? Yeah, for cost-effectiveness. Well, we'll get into that. And, I mean, it's a published article that I just had a fit about. In fact, I was president of IFNA when it was published and wrote a letter to the editor. And huh. that article explains exactly what you're saying, huh. why well, they don't want that. we got to hear about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we got to wait. A little suspense. <laughs> yeah, you, won't, suspense you won't have to wait long. <laughs> So tell us about some of the reasons European countries avoid using nurses in anesthesia. Okay. There was an article that I said by Kane and Smith, and it was entitled An American Tale. This was uh, written in the U.K. It's an American tale, professional conflicts and anesthesia in the United States and implications for the United Kingdom. This was published in the journal Anesthesia with an A in it, where an A doesn't belong, A-N-A-E-S-T-H-E-S-I-A, which is the Journal of Ireland and the UK, and it was published in, um, in 2004. And the article was very nicely written, really. I mean, it was pretty factual. But what Kane and Smith pointed out was a professional conflict between nurse anesthetists and anesthesiologists exists only in the U.S., Interesting. And they recognize that conflict, and they don't want to create that conflict uh, in their uh, country. That is the real reason. Well, who were Kane and Smith? They were, were they MPs? They, yes. They okay. were anesthesiologists uh, okay. that published this. I, and I don't see where, where they were, uh, were employed here. I've got the article with me, but they are in the U.K. Okay. And, um, and, uh, I'm going to have to read that article. Yes. I've not ever read it. And the other thing that they point out in the article, which is absolutely true. In the U.S., anesthesia developed as a nursing specialty first. Well, that's because we were first. That's right. And in the U.K. and all other developed countries, it was a medical specialty first. And many of these countries are still fighting to keep that medical specialty and not allow nurses in the door. And as we know, in the United States, and it was pointed out in the article, physicians began to take a greater role after World War II. Uh Many of them were trained for short periods of time to be um, anesthesia professionals and providers, whatever you want to say, and they did that. And then the other thing that made them proliferate so much 
is payment arrangements between the 1960s and the 1990s in the United States made anesthesiology a very lucrative, lucrative choice for medical graduates. And so you saw just an explosion <laughs> of these people. Now, we don't think that any of this has to do with money. <laughs> no. Follow the no. money. <laughs> and, um, and during that time, nurse anesthetists were, were working to, to retain their scope of practice and preserve their professional status. And this is what Kane and Smith pointed out in this article. They also said that changes in payment, and we all know about that, mm-hmm. the 1990s, we've talked about it on other podcasts, and direct reimbursement in, in 86 and implementation in 1989 threatened anesthesiologists' mm-hmm. income and led to reevaluation of the evidence over cost-effectiveness and safety of different anesthesia models. And more recently, and they realized this, the terms of engagement have shifted from dispute over evidence to political lobbying to promote professional capabilities and status of each anesthesia provider. This is in the article? All of this can be found oh, in this wow. article. In the ar- I mean, this says it all right here. Yeah, it does. That's why I, Absolutely. Know, that's why when you told me what that European anesthesiologist has said, we can't take our nurses away from the bedside, you know, that has nothing to do with taking the nurses. They don't want someone that's licensed and credentialed. Right. You know, that they see the problem that their physician colleagues have had with us. Mm-hmm. Why would they want to give birth right, to, another to another problem? problem. Yeah. yeah. And so the article goes on to say that the historical development of anesthesia in the UK is different. And as I said, it was recognized first as a medical specialty. But they also pointed out apparently there was some effort to train nurses in the UK in the early 60s and 70s. And Kane and Smith said anesthesiologists lost an opportunity for collaboration. Right. So I found that positive. And they suggested that education and training in the UK of non-physicians be in collaboration with the Royal College of Anesthetists as terms of role and make them members rather than encourage formation of new, new groups. groups. How would you like that? Uh-huh. So they would then form these other members. They would make them totally under the control of the Royal College of Anesthetists, or Anesthetists, as they say. And, you know, if you look at our history, we have stayed so far away from that, all the way from the time of Agatha Hodgins and Helen Lamb. Mm-hmm. Never could we give our education and our control to your competitor, basically. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the most striking thing they said in this article, Jeremy, getting back to what you said, payment arrangements in the U.S. would not apply in the U.K. Mm-hmm. Anesthesia consultants are paying the same regardless of work intensity or how many non-physician anesthetists they supervise. Huh. Non-physician providers are not likely to be in competition for work or payment in the U.S., now, that says a couple of things here. One is it shows how we're so different, but it also shows be careful what you ask for right. in a single-payer system yep. for all of healthcare in the United States because that is moving more towards a model like you see in the U.K. and Ireland mm-hmm. than what we have always been accustomed to. And Kane and so on also pointed out that the development of anesthesia assistance since the 1980s shows one way in which a new role can be introduced within the control of another professional group and may serve as a more 
helpful assistant than a CRNA. Interesting. And if you look at where the AA started mm-hmm. down at Emory under Steinhaus and all in the mid-1980s, they had looked at educating more nurses, but they couldn't control them. Right. right. And so the whole birth of the AAs came from the ability and desire to control that person. So, Sandy, what I'm hearing you say is all this has to do with money and control. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is so profound. (laughs) I I, I didn't know this. (laughs) You learn something new every day. We can't get anything over on you. Well, you know, I did uh, write a letter to the editor of this particular article, and uh, it was published in their journal in 2004, volume 59. And uh, in it, I pointed out that, you know, that they did a, a good job in telling their story and really telling the difference between the United States and, uh, and their country. But I also pointed out that we need to understand that conflicts between the two professional associations have, for the most part, not generally affected local practice settings. And they have their greatest impact on the political and regulatory decision-making process. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and I know, Sharon, that nurse nurses go to work every day with anesthesiologists, right. and they leave that baggage at the door. Absolutely. Because once you're there, you're there to take care of patients. And I, I said in my response to them that most CRNAs in the United States have a working relationship with anesthesiologists, and both work well together to provide safe anesthesia. The conflicts at this level, where they exist, have more to do with limitations on training experience and I put in this, I had educated nurse anesthetists for more than 35 years at a major academic medical center. And uh, the physician anesthetists and both providers leave the politics outside. It is hoped the American story, as described, will not discourage education of nurses in the anesthesia role. Nurses, by virtue of their education and experience in patient care, are uniquely qualified for the study in the field of anesthesia. And many European countries have developed this nurse specialist, which has been satisfactory to both nurse anesthetists and anesthesiologists, and has provided a high-quality care. And I let them know that the IFNA had standards on starting new programs, and we have um, practice and educational standards, and, and we are there to assist in any way possible any country that is looking um, to put this model in place in their country uh, with nurses. But I don't think that's going to be very soon in these developed countries that I just mentioned right. that started out saying that this is a medical specialty and nothing more. They would feel very comfortable, I think, having something like an AA. Canada's the same. Right. You know, they want uh, something in uh, like an uh, anesthesia assistant. They don't want a nurse because a nurse is dangerous to them. Right. You know. <laughs> and, in fact, uh, Mara McAuliffe spoke to the Royal College of Anesthetists after her study was done, and um, she was a brave woman to go I and mean. do that, but she, uh, she did a very, very nice presentation. But so far, they're protecting their turf. Yeah. And when you hear the statement, we can't take our bedside nurses and make technicians out of them, nothing can be further from the truth. Yeah. They don't want competition. Well, it's the medical way. If you ever get an opportunity, read the book, The Medical Monopoly, but you'll have to take metoprolol whenever you do because it will make you crazy. But the reason why PAs began, and we're in the belly of the beast, 
the PA program, first PA program was at Duke University in what, 68, 69? Because it was, those nurses are getting too big for their britches. They're already advanced practice nurses, so they needed to create something else, so they come up with PAs. Yeah, and one of the first programs, I thought it was the first program, was at Wake Forest, but I could be wrong. But it was a very early program, Mm -hmm. too. That PA program at Wake Forest is very, very old. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. This is uh, it's, it's interesting stuff just to look at the differences around the world and IFNA obviously is is bringing light to that not even to just American nurse anesthetists but around the world and that's great great work. So Sandy, you have any closing thoughts as we wrap it up? Yeah, I, I think that uh, now you know 31 years after the formation of IFNA, we are at a envied position because. We have a very energetic, dynamic president in uh, President Jackie Rawls. They're making huge strides to develop collaborative relationships with other globalizing organizations. They have a wonderful relationship, not only with ICN, but uh, WHO, the G4 Summit. In fact, Jackie, Mm -hmm. our IFNA president, is an officer in the G4 Summit. And that's a, a large number of organizations that have come together for world health. And, you know, I think that we're in an envy position because in the final analysis, in developed countries at least, they're going to have to figure out how they're going to pay for all this. Right. And it's about quality, cost, and access. And as I've said many, many times on these podcasts and in other places, we are the answer. We are the solution. We are not the problem. And our, our colleagues, uh, physician colleagues, they cannot provide total access, or they can, but they don't. Right. You know, to rural America versus urban and so on. I think the quality is saying we both provide a very high quality level anesthesia, but the cost is not the same. Right. If you look at the cost to educate an anesthesiologist versus uh, a nurse anesthetist, it is much higher for the physician, of course, and the salary is right. much higher. So, right. um, And so I think for us, what happens around the world impacts us. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's so important for us to be a strong a leader in IFNA. I coined the phrase when I was president, moving ahead to be the best, reaching behind to help the rest. Uh-huh. Because every time these countries look better, we look better. And so I think that the stars are aligning in our favor but we must be patient and we must choose the right battles and we must keep our ladder on the right wall and um so with that you know we can be a real force not only in this country but for the world at large yeah i think those are uh, words to live by for crnas absolutely absolutely well Sandy, thank you. You're certainly welcome. This this has been a fun one. Great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's been really good. Sharon? Looks like. Looks like we're going to close this one down. We want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, but only if it's positive. We want no negative sentiments out there, folks. (laughs) Until next time. It's a wrap.
Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.